I'm not Quiver Doyle. <laughs> okay, let's let's try that again. Whew. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> I'm not Quiver Doyle. And I'm not Catherine Foyle. And this is not not a podcast. Not not etc etc etc. Not not all the other things that it might be, but it isn't. But is it? I don't know. Do you want to give them a quick reminder of what we're going to do? So every episode we randomly generate three numbers that correspond to three lists that we have. One of the lists is films and TV shows. One of the lists is books and comics. And one of the lists is songs. Uh, and we are very much soliciting suggestions at this point because there's a million things we could put on the list, but the second that we open the lists, all of those things seem to drop out of our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if anybody has any weirder, spooky suggestions, please yeah. ping them our way. Do we have a... Like... Rules, categories. Rules for other people. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I feel like just send, send them on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they they got to be weird. Yeah, they've got to be weird. That's the I, only rule. I don't want to. I don't want to disallow time travel, but I will say we've pretty much got it covered. Yeah, we've um, got it down. <laughs> So if you have listened to the first episode, you'll go, you might be thinking, all right, but you said there was three lists, but in the first episode, you only talk about two things. And you would be correct because we cut out every mention of the song that we failed entirely to, to reference. Yeah. But in the second one, we got it in there. It's totally fine. Yeah. So basically, like, any time you only hear us mention two lists, it's because we didn't, we weren't able to incorporate the song. Yeah. And that may be because our song list is not perhaps as finely... <laughs> finely honed as our other lists in terms of relationality and themes Mm -hmm. um so i feel like this may be a time where the song doesn't doesn't get in but let's have a go and see what it is yeah and if not we'll just go back and re-record the intro and none of you will ever know Okay, so are we generating? Yeah, we're gonna generate our first number and that will be the film or TV show that we're gonna do. Okay. Okay, I'm excited. Next month of our lives. (laughs) Here it comes. Let's fucking go. It's number five. Which is the TV show Utopia. Oh! <laughs> Sweet! Wow. Um, really seems apt 
in these times. To, yeah. To be clear, we're recording in what I'm thinking of as the depths, but it's probably just the shallows at the beginning of uh, coronavirus. Mm. Um, and Utopia is an incredible TV show about a man-made uh, disease intended to solve overpopulation. Mm-hmm. Um, problematic concept, really brilliant looking show, really just incredibly directed. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had it Incredible here. soundtrack. Actually unbelievable soundtrack. Like a soundtrack best. that I still listen to to this day. Oh, it's if you want to get, if you got work that you need to get done quick, put on the Utopia soundtrack, and you will get it done. Like you might think I'd remember the director of Utopia, but instead, just no. the name of Cristobal Tapia who de Beers <laughs> is cemented in my mind as the guy who did the, the soundtrack because it's just so excellent. I have full disclosure already like written about Utopia. Now oh, that yeah. article was never published. <laughs> Not nothing to do with me, but I I wrote for it. Um, I can't explain. We did a we did a class um um online, um that I wrote a piece for, and that involved the interactive tie-in aspects of Utopia because there was oh, a game yeah. on the Channel Four website. There was like Twitter. They like stalked journalists, like shows stalked journalists who wrote about it. It was like <laughs> really in depth because it's all about surveillance culture as well and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. Um. Oh, there's just there's just there's so, so much, much to there. get into. But then for that, for the piece that I wrote, it dealt quite a bit with the second season because it gets more into um, I, I want to say love is a virus. That's like not what I wrote about, but it but it's a demonology mm-hmm. by a psychonopedia, which like may not mean anything at this point, but I have a feeling that we're going to reference it later. Yeah, so that's Utopia. Exciting. Yeah, I guess we don't want to get too much more into it till. Yeah, it's laughter, but uh, but yeah, really good. It? it is actually quite funny. It is also quite violent, I will say. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, pretty so. graphic as well. Yes, pretty yeah. graphic. Yeah, the like secret is like embedded in a comic, mm. and that's like the center of the show. Yeah, and so everybody has like <laughs> all these like comic <laughs> manuscripts that they're running around with. It's uh, it's uh, pretty fantastic. Okay, so okay. will we find out what book we're going to have I to am discuss? Scared, terrified, concerned, as always. worried. I'm looking at this list and I'm like, nothing here. What is gonna match up? I just mm. don't know. I mean, just don't look at the list. Just give us the number, you know. Okay. Just, uh... Okay, so let's generate the book number four, which is his dark materials which is really uh, interesting because yeah when you wrote that about utopia i wrote an essay for the same class about his dark materials that is so bizarre so we're gonna have to dig those out i don't want anyone to ever see that well, well, so, well i've already read it you know you've already read mine so his dark materials you Probably, you've almost certainly heard of it. If not, you'll have heard of the first one in the series, Northern Lights. There was a film adaptation, and there's currently yeah. a really good BBC series that's just been made that we just seen earlier this year. Um, the works by Philip Pullman. It's not a. It's not anti-Christian, per se, but it it is in a way so. The books position themselves against the church, but 
in this very particular, very Protestant way. <laughs> That's what I would say. So are you saying it's a Protestant book? Not if that's going to make people not read it. But I will say that my Lutheran pastor at the time when I was reading them was also a big fan. Okay. So there is that. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, the, 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 the main thing that's interesting about his Dark Materials mm-hmm. is the parallel universes aspect, I Ye- think. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends... Who you ask? For right? me, yeah. Oh, for you, personally. yeah. Yeah, it's the parallel universe aspect. Um, but there's also this the the alethiometer, which is this device that uh, essentially is like a fortune telling device. Mm-hmm. Um, there, all the people in the universe of historic materials have uh, demons, mm-hmm. which are these kind of soul bonded animal companions that are essentially the kind of other half of people's souls there's so much there i feel like these are these things are too hefty there's a there's a lot going on to deal with together and i don't know if we're gonna cover them all i mean there's also like the whole dust aspect of like you know particles of consciousness yeah uh, just like floating around, are the original sin maybe, probably too many concepts. We're we're gonna have to just narrow down the concepts. But I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this sucks. Yeah. I mean, it rules. But like, I love both of these things, utopian historic materials. But they are like, these are meaty boys. Like, yeah, two two very chunky boys. <laughs> Um, yeah, so those are, those are our three things. Yeah. Those are our two things. Two to three pieces of media. Yeah, so like, Utopia and Historic Materials. Yeah. I mean, I am so excited to rewatch Utopia. Yeah. I'm pumped. Look at the fucking poster, etc. It's fucking class. Oh, there's definitely some intersections. Oh, big We are almost certainly now certainly going to have to talk about Cyclonopedia. I got like maybe two and a half hours of sleep. Um... (laughs) In attempting to prepare for this podcast, I went too far. <laughs> Researched too hard. Yeah, I dug too deep. Um, hyperstition bit back. So where where do you want to be right now? Where I want to be at all times <laughs> is asleep in various kind of futuristic and or fantastical surroundings. So I want to be asleep in a bubble in the sea mm. or I want to be asleep in like a futuristic flying car that, yeah like robot piloted and cushioned <laughs> my question about the flying car aspect mm. is like why does why does it need to be a flying car when you are asleep <laughs> <laughs> well I've kind of thought about that where it's just like well what if there's just pillows everywhere and then some bits are more pillowy and that yeah. can be the pillow 
but it's just not quite as good. Like, and also the thing is, I mean, what if it was like raining? That'd be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If anybody else has any like sleep fantasies, uh, <laughs> send them in to notnotpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah, so we picked Utopia and Historic Materials. Since then, we have rewatched the entirety of Utopia for was probably probably fourth or fifth time watching the first season, probably the mm-hmm. third time watching the second season, I'd say, for both of us. Uh, we've not reread Historic Materials because it's just, I mean, it's too much content. And we don't have the books here, um, obviously. Yeah. We're a bit limited by that. but um, Limited by the bounds of quarantine. Um. Yeah, so do you want to give us a little run-through of His Dark Materials? Yeah, so His Dark Materials, it's a trilogy of books. Um, the Northern Lights, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. So the first one came out in 95 and the last one came out in 2000. And I like really loved these books when I was a kid. Like I read... I think I was saying the other day, like, I read the last one first because, like, that's just how I used to just, like, find books in libraries and read them and, like, the internet didn't really exist. So I really had no idea, like, what was going on in that last book, but I was enjoying it. So, I don't know, eventually I found the other two anyway, I guess, and then reread them again. I think it's important to mention the sort of philosophical outlook of those books, right? Which is sort of a anti-church but like pro-human sort of approach yeah and that's like I guess that's like the overriding it's like the theme you know yeah okay so can you I mean it's a challenge I suppose but can you (laughs) can I summarise all three books of the trilogy Um, yeah could you give us like a short like a very short version and then like a slightly longer version well I'll tell you the the little short version that they have when they you know anywhere you read officially about these books is one sentence and it's it follows the coming of age of two children Lyra Balakwa and Will Parry as they wander through a series of parallel universes I mean... End of sentence. Could anything tell you less? <laughs> Which is just like, yes, that is true, but that would not, that would hardly make me want to buy the book. Like, Oh, they wander through, purposeless. <laughs> just floating around, <laughs> waiting for someone to give them a task. Yeah, I guess, like, you can try, maybe try and summarise in terms of, so the first book, The Northern Lights, you meet Lyra, she lives in Oxford, she gets taken to London by this woman called Mrs. Coulter. From there she gets kidnapped by a group of people called the Gobblers, then she's rescued by another people, group of people called the Gyptons, and then they take her north because she's looking for her friend who is also captured, right? Yeah. Accurate so far. And then in the north, they eventually come to this place called Bolvanger, where they find out that people are trying to separate children from their demons. Basically, in the world that Lyra lives in, every human has a sort of manifestation of their soul that's called a demon, who's like a little animal or a big animal, 
who is like connected to them yeah. through sort of spiritual you know, soul tethers or whatever yeah. yeah so yeah when you're a kid your demon is like changing form all the time and then kind of when you it's not really when you become a god it's when you like hit puberty sure it kind of around that time it'll form into some sort of animal that sort of represents your personality in some way so like in the books like people who are servants kind of tend to have dogs and then like people who work on the sea will tend to have some kind of like sea animal yeah or like a bird or whatever yeah yeah Anyway, so, like, basically at the end of the first book, Lyra finds out that her mom is in charge of this group that's, like, separating kids from their demons to, like, experiment around the idea of original sin, which manifests in the books as this particle called dust. And then her dad uses her friend who she went to the north to rescue... He, like, severs him from his demon on the top of a mountain and uses that energy to, like, open a portal to a new universe, to a parallel universe. So, so like, really bad, bad parenting on both sides. Basically, they each have this obsession with dust. They're both terrible parents. The worst. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's trying to, like, free humanity from the church and, like, her mum is trying to free humanity from original sin. Mm-hmm. On, like, kind of on behalf of the church, but also just, like, as a personal mission. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. she had sex once, you know, and that Didn't was... Didn't turn out a, great for that her. was a mistake. Um, I think in that book as well, you, like, you find out that there's a prophecy about Lyra, right? That her kind of puberty and, like, temptation and, like, ultimate sin will lead to what they call like the second fall like the second fall of man like yeah so she's like the new eve yeah and so her like life becomes this like microcosm of this like struggle of like can humanity be saved from original sin Mm -hmm. and so like everybody on all sides is kind of like invested in her yeah in her future and like what like how is she going to resist this temptation or not right yeah. <clears throat> so I guess just to say then, uh, there's like Will is the other main character who doesn't actually get introduced until the second mm. book. So Lyra's got this alethiometer that can sort of, it's sort of a device that can sort of tell the future almost. Yeah, it's like a fortune telling device. Yeah, so. and it's a way for Dust to communicate about midway through the second book, Will and Lyra meet. And then Will has this knife that can basically cut through worlds into other worlds. So that's a subtle knife from the second book. And then like the last key object, I guess, is the amber spyglass. Yes. Which is an object from through which you can see. Yes, which you can see dust. Yeah. So that's the last key object. I would say key happenings are kids are being cut away from their demons. Mm-hmm. The subtle knife can cut between parallel universes. Then the third then the, the third thing that happens is that her father goes to war against God. Yeah. So just little, oh, just <laughs> they just sneak in a little war against God there in the last book, you know. They basically discover in, in the last book. It's basically parties. kind of like the reveal is that there is no heaven, right? Yeah. Like everybody who dies goes to the same place. Yeah. This world of the dead. That's just basically like another universe that you can't escape from. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, and basically Will and Lyra create 
an exit so that these souls can can rejoin the universe. Mm -hmm. As you can tell, they I, they're like three big meaty books, like full of a lot of. Like you could probably you could talk, you could do like a whole podcast just like on the themes of of those books. Like, okay, I think that's good to be to be getting on with because uh, like we'll we'll come back to, to we'll be coming back. Stuff. We will indeed do be. a lot of stuff. Yeah, so that was his Dark Materials, which is like theoretically a YA series. So then Utopia um, is a series. It was on Channel 4 in 2013 and 2014. The creator, let's say, was Dennis Kelly. It was this very kind of cool looking like conspiracy thriller. For my money, it's one of the best first episodes of any show ever. Yeah. So, you know, give it an episode. See yeah. How you I suppose on. we should say as well, like, tragically cancelled after two seasons. Yes, yeah. Uh, when they definitely had a third planned. Okay, well here's an extremely short version, extremely mm -hmm. abridged. So Utopia is centred around this plot by this extra government group called The Network. They want to combat overpopulation, which they see as like this huge issue that is going to essentially cause war and like human tragedy on mass scale within our lifetimes. But yeah, so they want to combat uh, this problem by rendering a huge percentage of humanity incapable of reproduction by introducing this genetic mutation. So mm -hmm. they want to create the fear of a pandemic to get people to take this vaccine and in the vaccine is this genetic mutation. So that's like mm -hmm. big time spoilers for, for the first season, but that but that's that's the crux of it. So that's the kind of overarching plot, but the story itself follows this like, group of people who I am just going to refer to as the gang, they know each other from <laughs> this like online forum mm -hmm. where they talk about this like graphic novel called The Utopia Experiments, which is tied to all these different like conspiracy theories, which all obviously turn out to be true. Um, and so the gang is like, it's this guy, Wilson Wilson, who's unbelievable, he's great, um, played by the Electaries, so funny, who's just like a conspiracy not... There's Ian, who works in IT and hates his life. There's Becky, who's the best <laughs> character to ever come to scream. But she's uh, Welsh and she wants to do a PhD on the Utopia experiments. Uh, and Grant, who is this little kid, he's like 10 or 11 or something. So like that's the gang. And there's a few other characters and uh, yeah, that's about the crack. So yeah, so the Utopia Experiments is this uh, graphic novel by this scientist who they call Mark Dane, who actually is called Philip Carville. Mm -hmm. And then you meet him in the second season and his name is Anton. And it's just like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, what's happening there? Um, yeah. Yeah, and then you eventually discover that the kind of leader of the network is called uh, Mr. Rabbit, which is a whole other... A whole other ball of wax that we will, will get into Mr. Alice. And so then what I will say about that in relation to his dark materials, mm -hmm. which I know I said, like, I wanted to say for the pop, but I know I said it a few weeks ago because I just, like, couldn't fucking deal with it. That, like, how, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so annoying. Like, how, like, 
we just generated them with some numbers and like we've both engaged with these texts before mm. but they're the exact same and they might not sound the same yet to you listener just you wait but the, I it's so frustrating to me they're actually identical like and here and here is here is how I would describe the like the sameness and the same plot that the two of them have right right so I'm just gonna this is new to me I'm just gonna read um, what I have written here which is probably rubbish so it's just that when a mommy and a daddy love each other very much sometimes they hack the reproductive capacity of the human race in an attempt to overcome their own desires but ultimately betray each other and their rationalist aims through their love for their daughter <laughs> so that's the plot of these two these two texts sure um just messed up lads like it's just the same what's going on well, anyway listen you might not yet be convinced but you you will be it's fine I mean I'm convinced I guess my only uh, argument is that Jessica's mother doesn't play any role no but they but they are the archetypal like mother and father yeah you know him and yeah what's her name yeah Milner. Milner. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, then they both are, both things are, both of them, the texts are obsessed with like reproduction. Um, yes. And like child rearing. Uh, yes. Utopia especially has this kind of ongoing theme of like, you know, about like adoption and like IVF. And it's kind of low key, but it's like, mm. it's definitely there on purpose. Yeah. I just like started freaking out when we like finished season one of Utopia and it was like, Oh, like Carvel, like that the scientists like hidden the code for for Janus, which is the uh, genetic mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's hidden it inside his daughter. Yeah, yeah. Again, in this, in my rewatch document, I have first of all, how the fuck does this keep happening? Both about ending sexual reproduction, sex is sin, and his dark materials. Reproduction is error in Utopia. So. Um. <laughs> And then I have, like Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter in His Dark Materials, Milner and Carvel are the parents of the network. Different aims, but just as destructive to Jessica slash Lyra. Chosen one narrative as subplot to rivalry with two bad sides, both with ostensibly moral aims. Each wants something from her, hidden in her DNA. Mm -hmm. Each parent stakes a claim to the power of her body, but doesn't account for her own choices. That's the problem with children, with multiplying. You don't get to control the actions of your offspring. <laughs> so that's my hot take. Cool. So end of podcast. <laughs> done it. They're the same. Both texts are the same. Job Goodbye. Done. <laughs>
and a little bit then back into black metal theory, which we've discussed in other, in other episodes, but mm. uh, I'll try and keep it as neat as possible. So hyperstition, uh, the word itself is made up of obviously the words hyper and superstition. So this from Delphi Carstens uh, <laughs> says that it's a word to describe the action of successful ideas in the arena of culture. So it's similar to memes and is about ideas influencing reality, basically. Yeah. We, we would in other places have called it fictions making themselves real, but that is an aspect of it. Um, it's, it's not all of it. Um, and it was yeah. coined by, well, was, yeah, in its current usage is coined by the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, um, who Carson's refers to as renegade academics, which I think is fair enough. It was this loose amalgam of cultural studies and philosophy students and teachers in Warwick University in the early and mid 90s. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Including like people you may have heard of, I guess, like Nick Land. Yeah, Nick Sadie Land would be famous enough. Sadie Plant, she's she's one of the founders. And then Mark Fisher would have been a student of, of Nick Land's who's mm-hmm. Reza Nigarastani, who we will be discussing in some depth as well. But yeah, like a load of people, uh, Alex Williams, Nick Shrenick, there's a load of people floating around the CCRU, some of them are in it, some of them are just in the... In a sort of a spiral-like shape, <laughs> you might say. Yes, exactly, spiralling around um, the CCRU. <laughs> and yeah, they listened to a lot, of, a lot of jungle and like wrote a lot of weird <laughs> stuff, some fiction, some theory, some some both. Yeah, having the crack. Yeah, so it seems like a good time. Just writing anything that you, that you wanted to, putting it on your weird blog. Yeah. So yeah, so they invented hyperstition, let's say, um, in as much as you can. They they discovered hyperstition mm. and it's really hard to tell you what qualifies as a hyperstition. So Kirsten's would say that uh, you know, is quoting from like Nick Land talking in nineteen ninety five, that hyperstition has four characteristics. That, first of all, they function as an element of effective culture that makes itself real. Uh, Second, as a fictional quality, functional as a time-travelling device. Third, that they are coincidence intensifiers. And fourth, as a call to the old ones. Now, this where you you lose me a little bit, Nick. But anyway... (laughs) There's, yeah, there's big, big bang of Lovecraft craft off the CCRU is the one thing right yeah <laughs> do, do, <laughs> I guess just like I'm trying to think about like do we want to be like oh they're problematic but we like them well so <laughs> hyperstition kind of avoids the scrutiny that accelerationism comes under is it good is it bad is it problematic or whatever even though it's so in the way that the CCRU write about it is so closely linked to Lovecraft it does it avoids political scrutiny because I think people think it's a joke. Yeah. Right. Um, but also, the thing is, the hyperstition is collective and the CCRE is collective. Yeah. And certainly in terms of accelerationism, which we'll get into later, a frequent argument is 
because they're collectively authored, these ideas, that you can't get them away from the influence of Nick Land, who has gone on to be a kind of founding member of the Dark Enlightenment. He's gone real conservative with yeah. his versions of hyperstition and accelerationism. And that everybody else's work in this arena is tainted by connection to him and to Moldbug and other kind of right wing figures who have kind of taken some of these ideas mm. um, in their directions. I guess just like the other thing is like hyperstition just isn't as mainstreamed as accelerationism might be. Yeah. And also there's probably people listening to this who haven't heard of either of them and are like, what the fuck? Are you on about yeah. who's Nick Land even? I don't know. So like, please stop defending these concepts <laughs> and just explain them and then defend them later. So like, I guess for us, like, what's interesting about hyperstition is the element of like fiction making itself real and a sort of a, like conspiracy manifesting itself. Yeah, so we would have encountered it through... Because I, cause I think of them both as we did two courses together, online courses, mm. and I tend to think of them both as hyperstition courses. But actually, the first one I think was on theory fiction, and hyperstition was just one aspect. Yeah. But it was so compelling. It was like, all right, well, how can this fiction that we're dealing with make an inroads into reality? Like, what are the what are the possibilities there? Yeah. Um, and hyperstition is is also like less about you doing something mm. than. Uh, opportunities or potentialities for things to become real yeah there's a really good quote um from the hyperstition blog by xenogothic which basically is like we must remember that fictions are more than capable of transforming themselves the best we can do is latch onto them yeah so it's like fiction doesn't really need you to do anything yeah well that's it and that is hyperstition doesn't really need you to do anything well, exactly, exactly, yeah. So let's just, like, unpack that quote for, like, one second. Yeah, so, four characteristics. An element of effective culture that makes itself real. I feel like that is somewhat understandable, you know, on its on its face. It's the self-fulfilling prophecy, kind of, you mm. know. It's not exactly propaganda, but it's in that realm. Um, I think what where we might lose people is fictional quality functional as a time-traveling device. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, there's a couple of aspects to that. One of them is like, well, I'm hesitant to use the 2016 election as an example, but it's the obvious example when you think of something like Make America Great Again is like you're instantiating this false history, Mm. right? That It's just like narratives don't only go forward in time. You don't only just have to say, I'm going to do X in the future. Like memes and like propaganda can uh, can rewrite history for people mm-hmm. um, uh, and for themselves. And you can instantiate something way further back in time than it actually ever ever came. Yeah, and I guess there's like this idea of like when something is like hyperstitionally manifested or whatever, it like always already existed. Yeah, because for something to be expressed, some aspect of it needed to already be present. Yeah. Um, so then number three was coincidence intensifiers so that kind of comes in to the superstition aspect of it again it's like make yourself real and stuff already being there it starts to look like a conspiracy like us in this podcast like oh everything is the same yeah you know yeah like it's just um 
Yeah, it's a coincidence and tired smart. I think we'll we'll get into that. It's a, it's narrativization, right? It starts to a fiction that starts to become real begins to narrativize real life. Mm-hmm. Do you know? You know. <laughs> it's just that's a really good line. <laughs> Um, so that's a kind of that's a that's a big element is the kind of storytelling aspect of it. Um, the other thing about time travel, just hopping back for a second, is um, this thing called the numogram, which will briefly, yeah, oh so briefly, too early to bring the numogram in. Yeah, I'm just I'm just warming them up. Just yeah, just planting you know, the seeds. Planting it the was seeds. always already there. Think about spirals, maybe. I I don't know. Always be thinking about spirals. Yeah, and uh, number four as a call to the old ones. Now, call to the old ones, that phrasing, obviously, explicitly Lovecraftian. Yeah. However, it's a stand-in for the other or the outside, right? Yes. That hyperstitions uh, or narrativization, like calls to the outside, they are Mm -hmm. moments where the outside that's always already inside can enter. Yeah. I know. And so it's kind of like uh, the idea of the like dust in historic materials, like this mm-hmm. external consciousness. Yeah, that's like communicating. Yeah, and and the uh, I guess the sort of idea of like opening yourself to an idea or a, an other. Yeah. So the yeah allowing so, yourself to be open to that. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Being opened by that and yeah. uh, we'll get into it yeah so if you don't understand hyperstition don't worry because I certainly don't and I don't think that anybody does really no I, I feel but, like I understood it when I got this quote and then I read the quote again <laughs> and it's like no hyperstition is very much a concept where you think you grasp it until you have to try and explain it to somebody else and what? then you're like oh actually I don't have an option yeah, I mean, I feel like that about most concepts, to be honest with you. But um, yeah. But it's basically like at its basic level, mm-hmm. right? It's things that make themselves real, things that manifest themselves. Yeah, they they part sometimes through human agents. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyhow. So, in what way does hyperstition relate to these two texts? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, the key text that we're using to read hyperstition of these texts is Psychonopedia. So it's Psychonopedia, Complicity with Anonymous Materials is the name of it. Uh, and it's by Reza Nagarstani, who is a member of the CCRU. I think, well, was it, yeah, I mean, he was a member in as much as anyone was a member. He was on the blog. He, yeah, he was on the hyperstition blog. We'll um, put the blog in the show notes. People can peruse at their leisure. Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> um, out of all of that, um, Reza, um, who's an Iranian philosopher, wrote um, Psychonopedia. Mm-hmm. Um, the most madcap thing that he's ever written, apart from being involved in founding black metal theory. Um, but it's weird because his stuff has gone real rational since then. Oh, and, really? Like, real, yeah, which is kind of kind of nuts. Because Psychonopedia is the most confusing book. Psychonopedia is not a book that I would recommend to anyone because it it like will give you brain worms. Yeah, it's like really it literally will infect your brain. Not to say that like 
we don't like the book or, oh no, we're a big fan. or like the ideas contained within just like it's an impenetrable tome it's just like I tried to open it like even last night to find a quote and I was just like I just fucking can't with this book I'm gonna have to put <laughs> it down again it's just like even the way the text is laid out like the book is too wide yes the lines are too long it's too just small. like what did you say it's like actively aggressive yeah, it's to like the reader. hostile reading yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah. It's like every moment it wants you not to read it. Yeah. It's really um it, yeah, it's really incredible. And yeah. And yes, but it was kind of nuts because um at the at the time a lot of people uh thought that he was an invention of the CCRU. Yeah. Whereas I thought it was the other way around because I read Psychopedia before I had like heard of the CCRU and I thought hyperstition was something that he had made up. Right. For the book, sure. Um, and then yeah. I said that to some some hyperstition heads um, in our hyperstition class, and they laughed in my face. <laughs> you fool! Um, why would you think that hyperstition was made up? Yeah, why do you think this made up thing about things being made up <laughs> could be made up by a man who made the craziest book of all time? You absolute rube! I guess the key idea in it that's relevant to like this discussion and also like I guess what we both uh, appreciate most is that again the idea of like being open to incursion like a seduction from the outside like in Psychopedia there's a nice little quote which I think uh, kind of encapsulates a lot of what the book talks about so um, it's on page 199, my favourite page. Um, <laughs> the best and only page, if you're where, asking Where, you know, he says, to become open or to experience the chemistry of openness is not possible through opening yourself. But it can be affirmed by entrapping yourself within a strategic alignment with the outside, becoming a lure for its exterior forces. Mm-hmm. So it's like this idea of, like, you can't... You can't kind of force this openness. Yeah. It kind of has to happen to you. Yeah. But you can attract it. Yes. And so, like, you can see that in both texts. You can see that with um, Wilson Wilson, obviously, in Utopia. Yeah. Um, And this relates to, like, a, a later quote on this page as well, where he talks about you know, through excessive paranoia, rigorous closure, survivalist vigilance, one becomes an ideal prey for the radical outside and its forces. Yeah. So this idea, like you talk about in that essay. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Uh, you can explain it or... or it is really. um, but yeah, I just get, like, this thing and that you see with both Wilson and Will is, like, they they both have that excessive paranoia. Will has it because he's being chased by, like, you know, those men who are, like... Uh, monitoring his mother's house and stuff like that yeah. but he has to see spends most of his life in that kind of state because he's afraid that the if people his, his mother kind of has like this mental illness right yes yeah, so he's afraid of like being separated from he's, her yeah so he spends his whole life sort of in that secretive state trying to protect her yeah right yeah and yeah and you have the same thing with Wilson Wilson and that like the first time they meet him in his house he's got all this equipment for like masking himself online 
Yeah. And, you know, he says that he's erased all traces of himself from the world, which uh, turns out to be not true at all because they find him really easily because he uses his real name online. (laughs) But they both have this, yeah, right, that sort of excessive paranoia, rigorous closure, vigilance, etc. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can drop in Wilson's initial quote in here because it's unbelievable. What do you use all this stuff for? Expunging all trace of myself from the World Wide Web. I have, over the past five years, using various international laws, data protection acts, and internet know-how, wiped all trace of me from the world. No bank account, no bills, driver's license, nothing. And every IP address here is masked and encrypted to avoid detection. I'm invisible. You do know you've used your real name on our forum, right? The end of the first episode, Wilson Wilson is tortured, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all on screen. It's really gross. And his torturer is really into, like, eyes. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, does all this, like, eye torture on him and ultimately takes his eye out with a spoon. Mm -hmm. Now, but their justification for doing this, despite him having no information (laughs) and giving them absolutely nothing is that he's so suspicious looking because of his excessive paranoia. Yeah. They're like, what is... Do you know what I mean? He has, like, all yeah. these setups so that he, like, doesn't show up on the web and, you know, he's got all this weird shit. He's got a bunker. Yeah. Like, in his house, you know. Yeah. And they're like, nobody would do this unless they had something to hide. Yeah. Um, and so that is the first kind of, like... That, like, taking of his eye is the first, like, uh, kind of physical butchering that echoes this kind of, like like space that's been made in him yeah for um well in this case for like janus for the network's designs yeah um which ultimately just like ramps up and then uh yeah in the second series yeah he ultimately totally switches sides basically yeah so like in psychopedia like razor talks a lot about this like butchering open is like a phrase that he mentions a lot. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's an important aspect of that, like radical openness, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess I just like saw parallels with Will in terms of like when he gains possession of the knife. Yeah, the subtle knife, like one of the one of the markers of the carrier of the knife is that they they lose like these two fingers mm-hmm. on their hands, right, and that wound is inflicted by the knife and it can't be healed in the way that a regular wound can because it's this knife can kind of like cut through um atoms and subatomic particles and stuff like that yeah so you just got like both of these closed off paranoid characters who experience this sort of like butchering open in some way yeah that leads them to like take on sort of a new task or a new burden yeah and like a new persona i think is also yeah he becomes like the knife bearer do you know what i mean yeah that is his, exactly that's his kind of tag and then yes yeah. wilson ultimately becomes ultimately. <laughs> mr rabbit yeah uh are you gonna do some quotes well I what i was gonna quotes. do a well yeah well i was gonna do a quote it's a it's a review it's nicola muscular reviewing psychopedia he kind of gets at what the text does mm-hmm. right it's action like as high precision 
Psychonopedia is a book that opens Earth to the divinity of reality. I mean, that quote alone speaks immediately to a quote from Utopia, mm-hmm. right? About the the book, The Utopia Experiments, right? Where, mm-hmm. like, Ian says to Wilson, it's like it's opening a door onto another world. Mm-hmm. And Wilson says, it's opening a door, all right, but what you don't realise is it's opening a door onto reality. Yeah. And, like, that's... I mean, and again, with, like, His Dark Materials, like, the idea of, like, opening doors to other worlds and, like, mm-hmm. that really ultimately just, like, reveals to you more about the truth of your own world and, like, yeah. the truth of reality around you. Yeah. Um, that it is one of those books that kind of, like, breaks your brain open so that it can think differently. So Sure. And that that's what hyperstition yeah. does. And so that it does that in order to teach you that about hyperstition. Yeah, it's like, it's not necessarily that the fact that it gives you brainworms is a bad thing. No, yeah. But it will. You just need to be aware of that going in. Um, But I think it's like, I think we should get into Mr. Abbott now. So Mr. Abbott in Utopia is like, I've forgotten her name, even though you just said it. Milner? Milner, right? When they meet Milner in season one. She says, like, we need to find out the identity of Mr. Abbott. Yeah. And, like, when we find that, this can all stop. Right? There's a story about how he got his name. He was embedded with the criminal underworld in Guangdong. But he was playing everyone off against each other. The Russians, CIA, the gangs. So the Americans got fed up. And they let a particularly nasty crime boss know that he was their man. The boss found him dragged him off the street, right through the middle of a busy office block. They tortured him, and as a lesson to others, the boss carved his own name into this man's stomach. Rabbit. Have you ever seen the Chinese character for Rabbit, Ian? Lots of lines, lots of cuts. Somehow he managed to get free, and despite being unarmed, he killed everyone in that room. Then he went back through the office block and killed everyone who'd seen him. By the time he was finished, 265 people on three continents had lost their lives and not a single living person knew his identity. That's who Mr. Rabbit is. He's the beating heart of all of this. And if we can find his identity, it ends and you go home. And then at the end of season one, it's revealed that she's Mr. Rabbit this whole time. Yeah. So, like, she had no reason to tell them. It's just, like, she was like, yeah. this is how you get out of here. You know? Yeah. But, like, Mr. Rabbit, the the being, is, like, a hyperstitional entity, right? Yes. It doesn't exist. Yeah. But Mr. Rabbit is just, like, an invention of Milner that she uses to protect herself. Yeah. Right? And... And she's not the one with the carving on her stomach. Exactly. But somebody does have it. And yeah. it's this man who we think at one point his name is Leighton, but actually that's also her. So we have no idea really what her name is yeah. or who's Mr. Rabbit. And this guy is just referred to as the assistant. Yeah. And so he's kind of the cover for her. And in that flashback episode uh, in season two, she he shows her like the carving on his stomach. And, and she says something like, it's just your loyalty breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then at the at the end of season two, Wilson kind of says this thing. He's like, 
well, like we are Mr. Rabbit. Yeah, she's kidnapped and he's trying to figure out, oh, I should have looked at, I wanted to look up your one's name. But he yeah. and this kind of like female assistant, they kind of realise that there is no higher authority. Yeah. That like all that matters is that it gets done. Yeah. And whoever does it is Mr. Rabbit. Yeah. Um, and so he says something like, well, we're Mr. Rabbit now. Yeah. So, and he just gives the order, whatever the order is. And then at the end of that season, the, the like last shot is Wilson carving the rabbit symbol into his own stomach. Yeah. Right. So he's like, you know, hyperstitionally become yeah. Mr. Rabbit. Yeah. Right. And then, like, similarly, the story you hear about the authority in Historic Materials is, like, this being who is God in the sense that, like, they are the only God that everybody knows, right? But that actually they were just, like, the first angel created. Yeah. And they decided to tell everybody who came after them that they were God and they'd created everything. Yeah. Right? Um, And, like you say... The, the Satan character mm-hmm. like figures that out and then is like ousted from the kingdom of heaven or whatever but it's a, yeah it's the same as Mr. Rabbit yeah like, because then later you know when Metatron sort of becomes the de facto god yeah, yeah. so Metatron says that like he's speaking he's the voice of god Right, I think that's what Metatron actually means. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, he's saying that he's bringing these messages from God or whatever, but, like, later you learn that God is just, like, this frail little yeah, <laughs> tiny waif of a man in a box. And, like, he's obviously not giving any of these instructions. Like, Metatron is just giving them himself. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this, I don't know, like this double, double bluff. Yeah. Where, like, God isn't really God and Metatron isn't really getting any messages from this god who isn't god to begin with. Yeah. And it's all just, you know... Yeah. It's all hyperstition. <laughs> That's it. It's hyperstition all the way up. Well, so yeah. there's, there's two quotes from the hyperstition blog mm. uh, that I think are really relevant. Mm. Um, so uh, one in terms of that, that it's just like God is the guy who sits on God's throne and says the God stuff, right? You yeah, know? yeah. So this uh, Mark Fisher um, in on the Hyperstition blog in 2004 um, kind of saying the kind of transcendence and the idea of an ultimate origin is like always doomed, you know, mm. because like there always has to be something higher. So he's like, yeah. every attempt to posit an ultimate origin of things, a meta level above all meta levels, the set of all sets is destined by its very nature to fail. There's no better statement of this than in uh, Godelescher Bach, Right by um, Douglas Hofstadter, mm. where Achilles says to the genie, you mean that God sits up at the top of the ladder of jinns? And the genie says, no, 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 there's nothing at the top, for there is no top. That is why God is a recursive acronym. God is not some ultimate jinn. God is the tower of jinns above any given jinn. <laughs> um, right. Which I thought was just like so apropos, especially given yeah, yeah. like this, this, this psychopedia, you know. Yeah. That it's like Mr. Rabbit isn't even like Wilson is Mr. Rabbit, but also, yeah, still nobody knows what Mr. Rabbit looks like, and he can't stop what she what Milner has set in motion. Yeah, Mr. Rabbit is really all the actions of the network. Uh, in terms of psychopathia and hyperstition and becoming a like a carrier for 
uh, kind of signals from the outside. Mm-hmm. There's the physical stuff with Mr. Rabbit. Yeah. Which is not just the eye, but also... I think it's key that uh, Mark, Dane, Phil Carville, Anton, etc. Mm-hmm. Is like not just a scientist and not just a creator of Janus, but also a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And like is drawing and like redrawing. Like he's obsessively redrawing the same images. Like Utopia the sequel manuscript that they're all looking for yeah. is very much like the first one. Yeah, it has he, some of the same <laughs> Like pages. it's the same pages, but he's just rethinking through these ideas that are like possessing him, right? Because he's really struggles with, with Janus, you know? It's weird because he seems to like be so convinced that like overpopulation is like the problem. He like, he has a, a, a moral responsibility to sterilize the human race, mm-hmm. but he really seems of two minds uh, at all times. Like he really seems torn um, mm-hmm. between you know whether he should do it. Yeah, um, and I think that that's because, well, not because, but for our purposes, because it's this uh, this idea that is external to him. You know, yeah. The, he's the he's the carrier for for Janus the idea, yeah. You know, yeah. And uh, that 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 his initial trauma is like the site of that. Uh, yeah, that that kind of opening to that. Yes, yeah. sure. Do you think there's an equivalent in his dark materials? Yeah, like I. I wonder. Um, there's just there's so much in his dark materials. Well, do you know what actually I do? Because I thought uh, I it was one of the last things I thought before we just before we started recording. Mm. Luckily, we were delayed by several hours. Um, Carvel is not like the only originator of Janus. It's impossible to think about um, Janus as without thinking about both him and Milner, who is uh, a woman who, you know, claims to work for MI5, but is later revealed to be Mr. Rabbit, i.e. the head of the network, mm-hmm. right? And we see in, there's one episode in, in um, season two that is um, a flashback. And so we see their kind of meeting and immediately there's this like, it, like insane connection between them. Mm-hmm. And they both like they pack. They become passionately obsessed with like making Janus happen. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody describes it. I think uh, her. She's, like, she's married, but like it's such a it's such a like afterthought. Yeah. You know, they're both married actually, but it's like yeah. it doesn't matter at all. Like it's not. Yeah. A, it's clearly not the kind of dominant relationships in their lives. Um, and it's not like that they're gonna like cheat on their spouses. Mm. But it also like. It doesn't matter. It's like it just doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, her husband like describes their relationship at one point as like brain love. Yeah, place, you know, ridiculous. But uh, but it is. It's this. It's uh, this connection, right? Um, and he basically. It's weird. Like, because Carvel kind of goads her essentially into killing her husband. So because like this like obsessive kind of love that they have, which like is some is romantic, but is also like an obsession with the project. Uh, manifests as like a duty to 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 Janus, yeah. Uh, and he says to her, you know, I don't feel like that about my wife. I don't feel like that about anybody. 
yeah. the only person I feel like that about is you and the work that we're doing together yeah um, and uh, so he in the utopia experiments the, the kind of plot of the graphic novel so called is about a scientist who sells his soul to the devil mm-hmm. she's the devil yes right um, and that's I think important um, it's, it's, you might recall from like the essay that I uh, had written that I uh, relate her to these figures, these demonic figures in Psychonopedia, these like female jinn. Yeah. Um, these like storytelling. Uh, yeah, so so as Negrosani relates in Psychonopedia, in the Quran and Islamic demonology, unlike in Christianity, Christianity, uh, Shaitan, Satan uh, is not a fallen angel but the first jinn. And that's actually the same in Hysteric Materials, right? Mm-hmm. Is that Satan is was a female angel who knew that god was lying about creating himself yeah yeah they're not exactly the same but it's similar because she because milner's role in creating janus is to convince philip that he has this like godlike responsibility and ability to to do this impossible thing yeah um yeah so the so the female of the race are called Janun, uh, a polysemous word which also means delirium, maddening love, and terminal schizophrenia. And mm-hmm. it is worth mentioning that he is also a schizophrenic. Like he he uh, goes uh, into uh, like what is yeah he, go, he he he's he's kind of institutionalized, and he is mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. And so it's like it's unclear whether the book is allegorical, whether it's what he believes, is he going, does he have varying understandings of reality, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, so the role of the Janun anyway uh, is to enact the butchering that will allow demonic interference to, quote, lay men open to the outside. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, yeah, and I'll also point out that God in um, His Dark Materials, when we eventually meet him, is also, uh, uh, has kind of gone mad, you know. That he's like uh, lost his his faculties, you know. Well, yeah, because he's like one million years old. <laughs> oh, I want to say one more thing about Mr. Rabbit. Yeah. Um, because uh, the thing about hyperstitional carriers like Mr. Rabbit, because they're collective, and because they're not a, a person, it enables a person to act beyond themselves. Yes. Right. And so, so how, so Nick Lamb says on, on the hyperstition blog, hyperstition puppets allow, quote, you to think things that, quote, you don't agree with, to follow a line to places that you wouldn't necessarily want to go. Um, mm. And Milner does say that in Utopia as well, that she, when she's trying to convince Wilson to kind of like come on board and do stuff for her, because he's not comfortable like killing people or whatnot. And she yeah, goes, yeah. do you think I want to kill people? Do you think I want to kill children? Like, yeah and uh you know it's some it yeah, i think she says do you think i wanted to be mr rabbit yeah yeah but it's like these are the things that have to be done you know yeah. that's what mr rabbit does he kills yeah. children you know so she has to do it um because she is a force bigger than herself right even yeah, in the yeah. absence of philip carville and yeah. the absence of the assistant you know yeah that's and that's why she needs another person again she needs wilson because yeah Without that, it's like, she's just a person. 
hyperstition, where it went after being originated by the CCRU, mm-hmm. then it was used by a lot of thinkers of the CCRU as an aspect of accelerationism. Mm-hmm. If my thought is, unless people are already writing in accelerationism and hyperstition are like listening, that listeners may not know what that is. Or if you've heard of it, you may have just heard like bad stuff. Um, <laughs> the first thing I will say about accelerationism is a quote from Xenographic, right? Because I have spent the last week, like not an exaggeration, fully seven days attempting to understand accelerationism to the extent that I could explain it briefly on this podcast. <laughs> and I can't. So here's what he has to say. I mean, his name is Matt. I just can't pronounce his surname. So, and Xenogothic is a cooler name. So, much cooler. Um, the post CCRU milieu today is made up of Landy and hangers on, neo rationalists, and a scattershot of other vaguely accelerationist t- trajectories that, the, that have found themselves embedded in a corkboard of new pop slash pulp modernisms. In the distance lie the decaying corpses of various speculative isms. Deciphering it all is a seemingly impossible task to the casual reader. It is. <laughs> it's legitimately impossible. Listener, it's impossible. <laughs> Basically, what accelerationism is, as far as many people think, is capitalism's going fast. Let's keep it that way and make it go even faster. Uh, and then it's like one of two outcomes will happen either singularity or collapse of capitalism to a better uh, outcome at the end. It's not mm-hmm. really what it is. It's more in terms of what we've been talking about, about hyperstition, uh, in terms of looking for potentialities uh, within the uh, mechanisms and kind of you know, pre existing contradictions of capitalism that could be exits, exit points. Mm-hmm. or kind of moments of like something else could come in you know mm-hmm. um, and accelerating those uh, that stratification or mm-hmm. that that uh, uh, yeah that making holes in capitalism where it already has holes right like this very moment in time like this very moment in time yeah I would imagine that if listeners have heard of accelerationism heard of it because it was in the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter who did mass shootings in New Zealand um, which were uh, racistly unmotivated and like Islamophobic yeah right now you also put about 200 other you know racist things yeah. in the manifesto yeah so Xenogothic talks a bit about uh, the Christchurch shooter uh, and it says, I hope it goes without saying that the shooter's form of accelerationism is utterly superficial, calling for nothing more than the intensification of social change in order to combat social change. So, yeah, so, so, so for the alt-right, accelerationism is about making, like, identity politics eat itself. And, like, they're using, they use these hyperstitions to, like, turn, like, social justice people against each other, you know, like, that, like, Russian kind of meme warfare around the 2016 election would be part of that. Uh, in terms of, is there any possibility for good accelerationism? Well, Xenogothic says that he personally adheres to the Mark Fisher definition of accelerationism, uh, which he outlines 
in post-capitalist desire, and I say from 2014. Um, uh, and he says, capitalism is a necessarily failed escape from feudalism, which instead of destroying encasement, reconstitutes social stratification in the class structure. It's only given this model that Deleuze and Guattari's call to accelerate the process makes sense. It does not mean accelerating any or everything in capitalism willy-nilly in the hope that capitalism will thereby collapse. Rather, it means accelerating the processes of destratification that capitalism cannot but obstruct. Uh, so, Sinogothic sees it as a call to hold open the moments of capitalism's own exit so that we might see what else may inadvertently come through from the other side. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all. It's just a, it just kind of quotes backing up. Um, yeah. So so that's a version of kind of what so-called left accelerationism. Sinogothic personally goes for this kind of left version of patchwork. There's also a right version of patchwork, which is mm. about kind of nationalism. You know, obviously, there's you know then there's different versions of left accelerationism. Inventing the future. You know, by Nick Schrenick and Alex Williams is like mm. famous. You know, touchstone in that. Um, I don't really get how it's accelerationism. They're kind of calling for like universal basic income and stuff. It, it kind of ties in, right? Because mm. um, technological advancement is a big element that they that everybody talks about um, in terms of when you're accelerating capital, capitalism as we currently have it. You know. Yeah. Um, there's also this thing unconditional accelerationism, which I mentioned just because it seems to be like the cool kid accelerationism, but I don't get it, and <laughs> it seems to involve doing nothing on purpose. But it's not doing nothing on purpose. It's doing what you're already doing, on purpose. On purpose, <laughs> knowing that it does nothing. So yeah, and it's not, and it's like less humanist. But right. like I'm human, so I, I'm I'm happy to stick with, you know, preferring the humanist. I think it's like interesting to think to think about accelerationism like right now in terms yeah. of like this current uh, moment. Like should be. Uh, an accelerationist opportunity. Yeah. But, like, I don't... But don't yeah. know if it's, it's happening. Like, it's not really happening. Well, yeah, I guess it's just... Yeah, I've been thinking about this... Well, yeah, I suppose the reason it took me so long to, like, think about all this stuff was because I was like, is there... You know, can we solve capitalism? You know? Yeah. No. But... <laughs> um, but it's just, like, where are the moment? Where's the, where's the exit points? You know what I mean? Where, yeah. Where are the pressure points? I mean, this right now is definitely an exit point... Yeah, but, but like, what exactly? Do you know what I mean? Like, where are the? I think like like. I don't know. Not to get like, too much into politics on this fucking. Stupid philosophy podcast. Yeah. But like, I think like this is a moment where people are seeing. That there are like alternatives to capitalism and the way that mm. society runs right now, and there is even like some. Like I know the UK is like reopening and it's not as good but like that there were some surveys about people who like recent surveys where people are like oh I think like work-life balance is way more important now and stuff Mm. like now that they've been given it because and I guess like this is only mostly middle class people but they've been given this sort of opportunity to work from home or like not work but have yeah like that basic income that they normally wouldn't have mm. um and they're kind of seeing like oh maybe i don't actually have to go to work like five days a week and yeah you know. big caveat it really depends where you are it's good here here yeah here it's here it's good 
Um, and it's so, it's one of those things that makes you, I don't know, it's making me really aware of like um, borders, I suppose, and like the differences mm. in, in different nations. I mean, mm. it is, I mean, it is a, it is seeing kind of the real effects of Brexit and, and Trump's election as well, you know, yeah, um, yeah. just to see how, how stuff plays out differently. But here yeah. it's... Yeah, I think it really, people are really seeing... Yeah, because like, what you're seeing is, like, people getting, uh, like, 350 a week, yeah. where they would normally be entitled to, like, two-something. Mm. Um, I don't know, like, some of these things didn't really play out the way we thought they would initially, but, like, you're seeing, like, the private hospitals sort of being taken into public ownership in a way, mm. even though we're still, like, forking out all this money to private hospitals. But just like load, like evictions being banned, all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff that like people have been we were, calling out for. Yeah, like, we yeah. were told was impossible, you know, and mm -hmm. like actually it was really easy to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the government just had to say we're doing that. Actually, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think like people will, like I think there will be some sort of change in attitude for sure. Even if we come out of this with the worst possible version of. The government that we voted in mm. in the last very weird election mm. uh there's proof that they can do all the things that they said they couldn't do because they love capitalism so much yeah and they can do it really easily yeah so yeah anyway this isn't going to age well when we are like plunged into like the worst <laughs> austerity ireland's ever seen no because like people are just not going to put up with it the same way they did last time mm. that's why that's my hot take well, like, that's... There you go. Anyway, maybe 20 minutes later, I'm going to finally get on to Ada's essay. <laughs> so I want to talk about an essay um, that uh, I came across in, in researching this, uh, written by our mentor and friend... Good pal. Uh, good pal, Ada Canole, um, in the book Floating Tomb. On, on black metal theory by herself and Nicola Maschendara. It was called like uh, the missing subject of accelerationism, heavy metals, weird realism. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, like, gotta read that then. <laughs> um, so Ada's essay on weird realism, W-Y-R-D, real, weird realism. Mm -hmm. Quib is on board now that it's got a Y. Love it when <laughs> things are spelled slightly differently than so, normal. <laughs> It's like, mm, that sounds good. Sounds My like it job. might be about string theory. Um, <laughs> string theory? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, calling it's the name of this episode. <laughs> anyway, so I was interested in reading it because it seemed to kind of promise a connection between accelerationism, which I don't understand, and black metal theory, which I think I understand but can't explain. So, uh read her essay called The Missing Subject of Accelerationism, Heavy Metals, Weird Realism. And I thought it was great. So basically, um, like, Ida is talking about, she's kind of reclaiming accelerationism from the, like, uh, dry, rationalist, kind of technologically focused version of it. Yeah. That it now proliferates, right? So she says... That accelerationism, which I mistakenly said earlier, maybe a billion times, was invented by the CCRU, whereas it's a Deleuzian and Guattarian concept, right? 
but the CCRU love the losing Guitari like no one else. We are not going to be discussing primary texts of the losing Guitari on this podcast. No, no, no. Not today. Not ever. <laughs> primary texts from philosophers, they can fuck off. Just feed me the the basic ideas. Yeah. And then tell me some book of fiction that incorporates them and I'll read that. She says that accelerationism has its genealogy, right, at the intersection of three concepts. Mm-hmm. The first one um, being Marx's idea that uh, from within and through machinic development comes emancipation. So that technology and, uh, yeah, the machine progress is going to be um, a, a driver of worker emancipation. Mm-hmm. Um, standard accepted right yeah um second idea of fictioning or fictions making themselves real aka hyperstition as we have got into and yep. the third uh being libidinal materialism it comes from various ideas from nietzsche and bataille and she says is variably construed as a pessimo psychoanalytic thermodynamic energeticism which like you'll get if you've read psychonopedia a primitive. And I have, and I don't get it. <laughs> a, a, it's also construed as a primitive libidinal craving or thirst for annihilation that is accomplishing itself through philosophy, and finally, then a negative excitation, instrumentalizable for political purposes. So that's a little bit um, obscure, um, but I found that I was able to think about it through. Utopia and historic materials in terms of that death drive being linked so strongly to kind of the idea of reproduction and this desire and the fear of desire and desire perpetuating itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nick Land and Reza Negersani are like always uh, do a lot of talking about um, like capitalism, uh, the kind of desiring machines of capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, Nick Land is talking about like, uh, you know, when you want things, capitalism is the best way to get them. You know, it can it can give you what you want it can give you more desire as well yeah. so yeah so so like that uh makes sense but then that that as a philosophy could also lead to annihilation right so yeah. so that that makes sense and the other thing about libidinal materialism as it suggests in the like name is that it's not just a, a purely rationalistic desire that it it has a a physicality it has an affect right um mm-hmm. yeah which is similar to to black metal theory but we'll, we'll get into that in a second so so Ida talks about a piece by simon o'sullivan in the accelerationist reader called the missing subject so he's resisting kind of the kind of dry rationalist accelerationism that we're kind of get a lot now uh especially from like Reza's more recent writing um, and other kind of left accelerationisms and like repositioning it in the body, right? Um, and so specifically he's talking about kind of the origins of the CCRU. It describes the early kind of conferences um, which involves the insights and activities of DJs, artists, cyber, cyber feminists and included experimental multimedia presentations and whole plethora of printed matter, all of which brought the outside into the academy. Uh, and ends in a form of writing with rather than about its subject Mm -hmm. so that with rather than about um i think you know you were saying that it's like that is black male theory thinking Mm -hmm. with right so yeah um 
And that's... Yeah, I guess, like, yeah, it's important to say. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that that's what we're trying to do. We've said it in in previous episodes, but, um, like, obviously you don't need to listen to every episode. Black Mm -hmm. Metal Theory, very briefly, is a phenomenological approach to black metal, which is to say, it's not theory about black metal, you know, we're not really talking about the history of it, that comes into it, but it's about the experience of black metal also specifically kind of cited in the body for me I, I find that you know um yeah but uh but yeah and we're, we're kind of building that outwards in terms of thinking with fictions which is something that like mark fisher and lots of the ctru were kind of already intuitively doing yeah um but uh but yeah so we, so we think of that in terms of uh, of black metal theory yeah so that's what we're trying to do we're trying to think with these texts so think with like utopia historic materials and and for us uh the the podcast generating them and matching them together is kind mm. of like an engine that kind of like accelerates your ability to like think with them yeah um and kind of like multiplies their ability to speak to philosophy you know yeah because i definitely feel like i understood more about utopia and historic materials by thinking about them together yeah than sure. i did separately mm-hmm. it's like this exponential you know it is like a coincidence engine i think we've you know, not to tutor on horns or whatever, but like, <laughs> and I don't know about the rest of my precision, but I think that with the random number generator, we have built a coincidence engine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whatever that means. Whatever that is. Um, <laughs> it's built. It's this. We're doing it. So, anyhow, Ida then kind of takes it a step further, right? But yeah, so she, she thinks that the missing subject of accelerationism is heavy metal's weird realism. Um, it's art of making reality, of knowing reality, and knowing how to make reality through its aesthetics of inevitability. She thinks that heavy metal's weird realism is a kind of cosmic hyperstition with deep and essential connections to the genres of commentary and weird fiction. Heavy metal's weird realism causally imaged as a web, the threads of which, like the linking together of singular responses in the chain or catena above, represents the endless interrelatedness of all living things but also of mechanical forces. If one fiber vibrates, so too all the others. In terms of weird, that WYRD thing, yeah. um, it has like three pages of footnotes on it, but what it like means, but the short version, you know, it's about a life force, it says, quote, an Anglo-Saxon concept of energy that's called strong resemblance to that of chi and prana, it has links with fate, destiny, and death. Like, for me, I was like, oh, dust. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does that quote say for me? To, like, it's like the interconnectedness of all things. Yeah. And the, uh, I don't know if it mentions consciousness, but it's sort of there anyway. Even if it's unspoken, right? Well, I, I think that people will be able to hear in terms of the, like, linking of, you know, the Tower of Jinns, you know, yeah. the never-ending god or whatever. But also, there is a character from his dark materials that we haven't mentioned yet. She's in the second book. We're introduced to this um, character called Mary Malone, who's like a former nun turned physicist, mm-hmm. right? And her area of research is basically this um, uh, dust. She calls them shadows, mm-hmm. but also she kind of also calls it dark matter. Mm-hmm. And so she's built this machine um, that can communicate with dust. Um... And so, like, there's a point in in the story where she she manages to communicate with them, and they 
tell her to ask a question, right? So she says, are you shadows? Yes. Are you the same as liar's dust? Yes. And is that dark matter? Yes. Dark matter is conscious? Evidently. (laughs) Right? Mm. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that dust is both like this conscious matter Mm -hmm. and also connected to the interconnectedness of all things, right? Yes. The books are quite into dark matter but also I think like string theory um, mm-hmm. and the way that those two things kind of connect um, I'm assuming people have like heard of string theory in general it's like a real like kind of pop science staple right mm-hmm. and like is discredited by some scientists right but it's the basic idea that like inside of the smallest element is just like <laughs> A load of strings, right? (laughs) (laughs) But like, so in his dark materials, those, the knife that can cut through universes, right? Mm -hmm. Can cut through these small elements and inside of those are the strings. But what they are in his dark materials are like these spectre beings, Mm. right? That come out. So they're like all folded up inside this little particle. And then when you cut through the sort of matter they're like released um but also like string theory kind of relates to um like the idea of like schrodinger's cat Mm -hmm. right this which like also is something that like was conceived of as a joke right Mm -hmm. but i think like everybody knows about it right so this idea that there's like a cat in a box and there's some like uh, uranium inside and the cat might be dead or it might not right but you don't know until you open the box mm-hmm. and like that's where the fundamental idea in his dark materials of like multiple universes comes from mm-hmm. right because like there's either the idea that like you open the box and the cat is alive and then that's like the true reality mm-hmm. right or you open the box and the cat is alive and in another universe you open the, the box and the cat is dead mm-hmm. right and so the universe splits at that moment yeah. where you've got a one universe with an alive cat and one universe with a dead cat. Mm-hmm. And like, as far as I know, this kind of allegory or whatever was like a joke, like about how ridiculous quantum physics is, quantum physics yeah. is like and how stupid uh, <laughs> the idea of like multiple universes is. Right? Yeah. But like, it's actually a really good example of yeah. how it works. Um. But, like, you see it in, in other, like, physics experiments where you've got, like, particles being particles and waves at the same time, right? And well, they, that, only, yeah. they only collapse into one version or the other when you observe them. Yeah. Okay, so that's, like, sort of the connectedness of everything and then you've got dust that, like, comes in between. But then there's also, you know, there's, like, those lodestone resonators that they have in the book. Yeah. Where they're, like, these stones that have been sort of uh, synced up which is like a real Mm. like physicist experiment right they've been synced up and so you do one thing to the stone Mm. and it'll do the exact same thing to the other stone Mm -hmm. even if they're like universes apart yeah right and it's all about this sort of like I don't know interconnected yeah this vibration through matter yeah Yeah. well the thing is because like utopia is obviously not a fantasy like it's supposedly kind of more grounded yeah but you even still do find traces of that now obviously there's the thing about fictions instigate Mm -hmm. different realities right 
but also there is like that one this one the one weird element about utopia is that really old stone yeah right that's basically just this ancient like rock right and yes. that kind of just appears throughout the first season and then kind of never appears again like Milner has it and Philip Carville had it and he used to say that it gave you permission to do anything right it is mm-hmm. this anti-human extra human you know evidence of life without humanity and yeah. the like the age of the earth and uh, these things that will like outlast us all yeah and that that is how that's from whence he takes his permission to like sterilize the human race yeah this rock gives you permission to do anything because ultimately we're all just the blink of an eye mm. which is like just feel like there's like a lot of connections there between that and hyperstition and yeah. like the multiple universes thing and there's like a quote just a, like a quote from uh that lemurian time war um which is ccru text ccru text oh. where uh, they're talking about attaining like unbelief yeah and just like this idea of like nothing is true so everything is permitted mm-hmm. um but like not that nothing is true because there's no single authorized version of reality mm-hmm. instead there's like an excess of realities yes right yeah. and so you obviously in his dark materials there's an excess of realities because there's like all of these multiple universes mm-hmm. right and i kind of feel like you can bring that into azrael yeah, the way that he like is able to do these like there's a quote from I think like it's his servant or something and he mm-hmm. says like Azriel like gives himself permission to do things that other people wouldn't even conceive of. Something yeah. like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like that. I mean it's like it's completely like messed up but uh because uh, he gives himself permission to like again kill children yeah but but also to wage war on god (laughs) yeah but that's the thing but so what i but then what i have so there is that permission but then it's also like when i see him in the mode of philip carville right who Mm -hmm. is like hijacked by forces from the outside right yeah yeah. like they're actually very similar characters obviously you know they're they're obviously the same in terms of what we're what i'm setting up as this like you know, family, yeah. you know, lineage and the second Eve. Because we didn't even get into that, actually. Like, that Lyra is the new Eve, but also Jessica, Jane, Hyde. Jessica Hyde is the new Eve yeah. because Philip Carvel has selected uh, a race that will be... Asriel being Lyra's father, Lord Asriel. Mm-hmm. And it's not said because I guess they thought they were getting another season, but it's strongly implied that she's pregnant. Yeah. Um, by the end of the series. Mm-hmm. So... It's, yeah, so it's the same. But what I'm saying is I don't actually think that Azriel does have more agency than Philip Carville. Well, based on just this note that I've written here, in his dark materials, what looks like a battle is really a play directed by dust. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all. It's just like, you know, dust is, is pull, pulling the strings, you know. Yeah, no, that is true, and you can see that in the, like, in the way, 
Lyra speaks to dust through the alitheometer and the way Mary Malone speaks to dust through her machine and then later through the I Ching mm-hmm. it's like dust is is telling them what to do yeah you know it tells her to like destroy the machine that she's using to communicate with them and go uh, you know they tell her where to find a window into this other world and they basically tell her like she needs to go on this pilgrimage to the mm. mule fair right and then similarly with Lyra like her whole trajectory through the novels is directed by like she checks with the alitheometer like what she needs yeah. to do next and it, and also and she learns like not to disobey it because like mm. it doesn't stuff doesn't work out yeah know, yeah when, yeah when she, she does there's a point where she like it tells her to help will and she goes off on her own thing and she yeah. it just like fucks shit up <laughs> yeah um but there's a good quote about dust um from like one of the angels that's loyal to the sort of satan mm, of the mm-hmm. novel where she's talking about um, the the authority, right? Mm-hmm. And she says, um, the authority, God, the creator, the Lord, Yahweh, El, Adonai, the king, the father, the almighty. Mm-hmm. Those are all names he gave himself. He was never the creator. He was an angel like ourselves. The first angel, true, and the most powerful, but he was formed of dust as we are. Dust is only a name for what happens when matter begins to understand itself. Mm. Matter loves matter. It seeks to know more about itself and dust is formed. The first angels condensed out of dust and the authority was the first of all. He told those who came after him that they'd created him, but it was a lie. One of those who came later was wiser than he was and she found out the truth, so he banished her. We serve her still. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a good summation of like what dust means in the novel which yeah. is basically like a consciousness but it's it is a th- like already inside but also from the outside yes, right yeah. because it's created from like humans beginning to understand that they're conscious yeah well, it, but, it wants to propagate itself yeah like, but yeah. then like you see like many times in the novel that it is like an external thing that mm-hmm. comes down from somewhere yeah, because yeah. you see through the spyglass, like yeah. you can literally visualize it. Well, that's the thing is like, and and all of the stuff about the prophecy. Because like, I was reading kind of reviews early, and like some of mm. them were like, he kind of you know, Pullman kind of loses his way. Like, what is all this like? It was kind of like random like plot holes, and like, what does this mean, and what does that mean? But it's also like all the storytelling, like prophecy is just storytelling, right? And mm. the alethiometer and all these these um like signs and, and symbols, um. It's just a way for dust to communicate, right? Yeah. So similarly, um, hyperstition, this is like actually like really key to hyperstition, right? The idea of symbols um, and like reading them and reading uh, like mathematics from the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like decoding and encoding messages, right? Mm-hmm. Into these kind of, um, I mean, it's essentially numerology, but it's, it's the idea yeah, it's the idea of of, mm. of of decoding truth from kind of like abstract messages, right? Yeah, you know. I want to mention one thing before we go. Absolutely, into the yeah, yeah. which is just that to relate the dust aspect, I guess, back to Utopia mm-hmm. in sort of a visual way is like there's a key scene in season one where Wilson decides to switch sides, right? Mm-hmm. And it's they kidnap this assistant to the minister right mm-hmm. played by Stephen Ray yeah and he's he great. he's really good and he kind of tells them the plan and he, he has that like um, 
great quote about like <laughs> how Genghis Khan has has done the most for like the environment in the last thousands of years because he massacred so many people. Uh, like in that moment, Wilson decides to change sides from uh, like being against this idea to like working with the network. Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, shot um, just after like the Stephen Ray character is talking where it's just a shot of like the window of like the old abandoned house where they're mm. staying and there's like a s- sun shaft coming through and you can see all these dust particles mm. in the air mm-hmm. and I think it I don't know if it's intentional but it's definitely like visually is like the idea is you know coming through and like well yeah it's just infecting. you are seeing Oh right, that that it's like the dust is like an infecting agent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that that's yeah, that that's true. But there's also just like um, that. It's just like he's still talking, and actually, the music at that point is really like it's this kind of heavenly mm. choir. Mm. You know, um, it's just like what he's saying seems as real as like the dust. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah, it seems yeah. so, it is so convincing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, in that moment. Yeah, and it just has me think of like because Wilson's obviously missing an eye at that point mm-hmm. and it has me think of like the trepanation in his dark materials mm-hmm. and like the idea that like the idea with the trepanation is that like you just like open this hole in your head and like the dust can kind of flow in mm-hmm. and it has me think of that as, as like the dust comes in and like that character is talking and he's just like taken over by this idea mm-hmm. right and then like so he lets that character go and then he stabs himself <laughs> in the stomach mm. To pretend that he was attacked, right? Yeah. And it's just like this self-opening, yes, yeah, kind of act. I don't know. Yeah, that it's like the truth opens him, and then he butchers himself. Yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's like, but e- even that mythologizing is part of the the narrativizing and the communication, not necessarily through truth, but through but through myths, right? Through myth making and through yeah. Uh, symbols, um, some communication from from the outside, whatever that might be, right? Whether that is like the kind of the low key kind of death drive in uh, Utopia, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and historic material, or you yeah. know, or from dust, right? Which because um, dust also makes me think of the the true detective quote, like death made time to grow the things that it would kill you know what I mean? like yeah, yeah. The, but it's like because dust obviously is death and yeah it's evolved in death it's evolved in sin it's evolved in life you know it's it is yeah. this you know overarching kind of logos you know mm-hmm. um but yeah so in terms of that communication oh do you know the one thing we haven't actually really got into unbelief um yeah i was gonna mention it earlier but then i was like i don't really know what it is <laughs> Um, well, I have a quote here. So, um, I just, yeah, I don't know how, it's certainly relevant to historic materials. There's this other hyperstitional concept, which I think actually does say into the symbols. So it's like, especially if you're, if you're reading, let's say tarot, right, or any sort of, um, thing like that, that I suppose there's a belief involved there, but it's like, you can also... Uh, you could also read your horoscope and act as though it were true without believing it. Let's say, for example, right? Sure. Um, so hyperstition, they developed kind of later on, like post-95, on the blog, they developed this kind of concept of um, 
the, the idea that unbelief was cent- central to the operations of hyperstition. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a quote here, um, and I'm actually not certain who it's from. It's, it's, it's early on in the, in the hyperstition blog. Um, so it's, um, hyperstition seems to share something with ideologies, propaganda, and religious dogma in that all concern the effectiveness or concrete impact of narratives and ideas. Yet at least one important difference is that political propaganda and or religious faith demands belief, etc. However, Mm. hyperstition's plane of of unbelief, on the other hand, requires neither belief nor disbelief. Its strength is to have the ability to sidestep the issue while not ignoring it. Hyperstitional practice involves recognising a fiction's effectiveness, using it, and still not believing it. uh, so, and, and again, this is where I feel like Utopia could have, uh, they made no effort to convince the masses about the threat of overpopulation, you know, whereas yeah. I feel like that could be a really interesting, uh, uh, storyline, especially now when we see how easy it is to, like, weaponize an opinion, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's definitely key to historic materials, unbelief. Specifically to um, Lyra using the the alethiometer. So the alethiometer is essentially this like I don't know how to describe it. It's just a little. It's a little golden compass. It's a little yoke. Yeah, it's like a, it's a compass. Yeah, but you yeah. you set three of the hands to different symbols yeah. to ask a question, and yeah. then the fourth hand goes around and points to stuff that is an answer. Yeah. And so all the symbols have have meanings, but they have like different levels of meanings. Yeah. So the meaning levels, you've got to like hold the level of meaning in your mind while you ask the question, as mm. well as just like pointing to the thing. Mm-hmm. So like there's like I think in the book they give an example of one of them, which is like the um, like a timer, you know, like a sand mm. timer, but like that that can mean like death, it can mean time, it can mean like loads of different things mm-hmm. as it goes down um, and like that you've got to hold all those while you ask it yeah. but then you've also got to know what level of meaning the fourth hand is on yeah. as it points to it Yeah. and sometimes the level of meaning depends on like what symbol came before and after yeah. and stuff like yeah. that uh, yeah so like there's all this encoding going mm. on um, at these different levels she doesn't need to know about things she doesn't need to you know she needs to not know about it and mm. when she used the alethiometer the thing is like at, by the end of it she loses the ability to like do it naturally yeah the reason that she's able to like she she has this uncanny gift for the alethiometer because she never questions she never questions it she never questions how it's happening she's yeah. just like the messages you know the symbols mean these things yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> and it speaks to me and it works yeah, yeah. you know yeah and it was, and she loses it then because she, like she, because she enters puberty. Yes, right? yeah, and like becomes loses yeah. that childlike. Yeah, and ability has the knowledge of good and evil and yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, so some people may be familiar with the like. There's already existent many uh, numerological encodings of language that people say mean things, right? Um, yeah, specifically Kabbalah, which is like this. Um, this 10 root that's like one through 10, right? But, and this is something that um, Negrasani gets in, like Ray's Negrasani gets into in Psychonopedia. He says, 
that like you can't start at one right you've got to start at zero so he goes zero through nine right mm. and you make these nine pairs now because it's the ccru and it's totally extra it's like they're demon summoning and mm. you know it's like chaotic because it's not ten it's nine and you're making all these pairs out of nine blah blah um but you can you know decode and like recode like words in i think it's called the like i guess the aq anyway i right raise also maps now i don't know did he initiate this version of the kabbalah because it is also tied to the numogram and i mm. don't know who made the numogram the numogram is also well it's a time travel machine but yeah we won't really get into that um but it's also it's a diagram for decoding the universe basically right Mm-hmm. Um, much like the alethiometer you know it's about how you read it it's about how things travel between the different points yeah anyway they have a little like engine that you can use to like <laughs> check what stuff equals and it mm. rules so I banged in a bunch of stuff right for this episode into this like decoder yeah bit. and uh, my favourite one was I put in the utopia experiments which is the name of the little graphic novel yeah. uh, in it and uh, one of the results with the same Kabbalic number is um, distributed conspiracy nice um, also hyperstition in action nice also omnicidal accelerationism <laughs> they don't all work out like that but yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's extremely good yeah okay there's two things so one is an anonymous post on the hyperstition blog like there's no author listed Mm-hmm. Um, saying who's kind of going fiction's making themselves real is old hat right it's all about this numogram time baby you know he's like this is more about grasping a concept of systemic self-reinforcement than playing around with fictions creating carriers to propagate fictions and hoping they become real seems pretty naive in the context of the far more ambitious program of grasping the numeric quality of reality production <laughs> and the non-anthropomorphic characterization of expectation and therefore artificial agency uh, which is a kind of going. How can we use the numogram to talk to dust? Right, like. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, because as well, like on the CCRU website where they have sort of these explanations about the numogram, there's a there's a section about the numogram and the I Ching, mm. right? Which says there's considerable evidence, both both eminent and historical, the Chinese I Ching, and the. NMA numogram or NMA numogram, I don't know, share a hypercultural matrix. So it's just like, I don't know, I guess they're the same, right? Mm-hmm. And like the I Ching is used in his dark materials to communicate with dust in yeah. in lieu of uh, Mary's uh, machine that she destroys. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, like it is, like we have the evidence that it's that it the same. It's the same. Yeah, it is a machine. Like the, the numogram is a machine through which you could talk to dust. And then similarly, it really reminds me of, um, I don't know how ye, the listeners, feel about it, but I love in books and films when um, they like fold the map a different way and it turns out it's a different map. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wow, this message was here all along. <laughs> And because Utopia has this central comic, this like loose manuscript at the centre of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a billion of those moments where it's like, look, that's like the logo in this crisp packet. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
Um, and more explicitly, this wee girl Alice rearranges all of the pages mm-hmm. and finds all these like lines going between all the pages, forming this like DNA structure or like this structure of the virus. Yeah, well, I think it's the structure of Janus, like the, yeah. the the thing what makes people infertile, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, yeah, and it's like this incredible like reveal shot where they they pan up and you see all the lines. So user scan shifts. I don't know which uh, thinker that is on the Hyperstition blog. Mm. it's a you know it's a collective endeavor so i don't really think it matters uh indicates how you can know whether a fiction can be a hyperstition right and whether it can be helpful to to reality right so here here's what i say how do you know that something is a hyperstition a sorceress map see if on initial reading it includes elements that effectively delineate intensive zones of the world um so for example, human engagement with the world is blocked by four main de-intensificatory modes, right? Fear, clarity, power, and death. So those are the things that are like the barrier between us and communication from the outside. Yeah. Afterwards, see if the map works. And don't worry about details concerning things like whether or not specific figures existed. Mm. <laughs> Work at the level of practices and navigations. Discover if the map is a diagram for the intensification of contact with the outside. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's what I see in, you know, historic materials and in Utopia, you know, that it's, like, the alternate history stuff of Utopia that suggests, you know, that, like, the, you know, Airy Neve was, like, assassinated for, like, eugenic purposes. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. like, ludicrous. But <laughs> it might have something to to say about conspiracy and about, you know, it, anyway, it might have something for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and similarly, the, the ending of historic materials, if you haven't really got into... Mm. could I mean could almost be like a call to action for like leftist accelerationism yeah know? yeah it's like basically a one of the angels at, at the end after the sort of the war is done and God is dead right uh, is kind of like well we still need to the world still needs to continue right mm-hmm. and like we should still be good to each other right so she, she says uh Dust is not a constant. There's not a fixed quantity that's always been the same. Conscious beings make dust. They renew it all the time by thinking and feeling and reflecting, by gaining wisdom and passing it on. And if you help everyone else in your worlds to do that, by helping them to learn and understand about themselves and each other and the way everything works, and by showing them how to be kind instead of cruel and patient instead of hasty and cheerful instead of surly, and above all, how to keep their minds open and free and curious, then we will renew enough to replace what is lost through one window. So there could be one left open. And basically, like, that window that they leave open is the escape from the world of the dead, mm-hmm. where the, the dead can come out and, like, rejoin the... The universe. Yeah. 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 You know, to an extent, I do uh, admire the concept of building a republic of heaven wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um... But I would, I mean, I would disagree with the idea that you can't be surly or 
whatnot, you know. And I don't know that either of these, either of the texts give us tools um, that we can put to use. Well, no, like I think they are giving you like a toolkit from which you can create your own machine. You know what I mean? Mm, mm-hmm. Like there's some bits, some bits in there that you can take out and use, I think. Yeah. Like I don't think you're going to find a solution to all the world's problems in a, in a book. Then what are we doing this for? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, I mean, I think overall it was like a good, uh, yeah, I think overall it was a good discussion. I think I understand maybe slightly more about hyperstition. Mm, hard to say. <laughs> Possibly know more about accelerationism. You know, I'd say if anybody was listening and was interested to know more about those things, that we could direct people towards some like good places to find out more. You know? Yeah. Um, so I would say in terms of yeah, I don't know. What would you say in terms of hyperstition? What would you, where you tell people to go? I suppose they could read Cyclonopedia. Sure. But I wouldn't start with that. I'd honestly just start with like the hyperstition blog and the CCRU blog, mm-hmm. and just read some pieces from that. The Lemurian Time War is probably a primer there. Yeah, I, if you... I don't expect any of it to make any sense. Yeah, Lemurian Time War probably won't make any sense without the other CCRU stuff. But if people have a grand, have an interest in Burroughs or Lovecraft, Lemurian mm. Time War is probably a really good place to start. Mm. If it just sounds interesting enough that you want to like dive in, like the collected CCRU writings are available mm-hmm. from Urbanomic. And actually Urbanomic, I'd say, has like, they have a bunch of articles up um, on their website. So um, that's probably a good place to start. And then uh, I've just bought as well, um, like Mark Fisher's collected writings, like the K-Punk writings from like 2003 to 2016. They're available on Repeater. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't include his books, as far as I know, but like his blog and everything and mm-hmm. really accessible, I would say. Um, Capitalist Realism, the book, really good place to start. Nothing in there about hyperstition per se or the word accelerationism but you know maybe one's better off avoiding those things <laughs> um uh, still still really good I th- i'm not sure when that's from actually it could be 2009 maybe um yeah 2009 yeah uh entitled capitalist realism is there no alternative um so yeah that's interesting and then it's he went on to kind of draw it out on on the k-punk blog after mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, and we've actually been doing this seminar with the University of Birmingham Contemporary Theory Reading Group. Mm-hmm. Um, doing a series about Mark Fisher at the minute. So if you want to join, they're just on Twitter. It's theory underscore UOB. Mm-hmm. And you'll see when the next one is out. Uh, yeah, but th- that's, been, that's been really good. I know uh, next week they, there's a guest lecture from Xenogothic aka Matt Cocoon. There's no um, point in trying. There's no point. It's going to be wrong. 
Um, <laughs> he's just on this podcast. He's just xenogothic. He's simply xenogothic, and yeah. So they, there's a guest actually with uh, with xenogothic, and like uh, he is, yeah, he's the guy to go to about. Um, all things Mark Fisher. Yeah. However, that guest lecture is fully booked. Um, there is a waiting list. Um, but also, in the meantime, if you wanted to hear his thoughts, he has a book on Mark Fisher, which I think is great introduction to like a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you prefer listening to stuff, I know he's on an episode of uh, Hermetics, which is by Twitter user MetaNomad, talking about Mark Fisher. So I think... Any of those places would be good places to start, so we'll just have a big kind of. We'll uh, put them all, put them all in the show notes. Yeah. So what did we make, Catherine? Well, I mean, I feel like you should tell us <laughs> what we've made. Uh, we've made a game, we've done a game, and I realised yeah. a few minutes ago that we don't have a name. A name for the game. A name for the game. Um, yeah, but it's basically a two-player game where you have to find the opposing player's joker. Um, and, you know, fun fun quarantine activity for you and your flatmates. Or, if you don't have any flatmates, we also have an online version that we will have a link to. So we'll have the rules and a link to this online version. Koivaz incredibly programmed the one player version herself. I, a complete mystery to me. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's easy to play, hard to <laughs> design. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know, we, we had good fun playing it. It's kind of... Uh, yeah. Kind of inspired by we were playing golf, um, not the ball game, the card game golf. Yeah, um, it's a bit of golf. It's a bit of like go fish or something like that. Yeah, a bit of like old maid, but the reverse of old maid. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just like you gotta find the joker. There's the amount of cards you gotta pick from is determined by making pairs that add up to nine. The face cards do special things based on the two texts. It's a bit of crack, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, we just say what the kind of the face cards are kind of inspired by the three kind of objects, like special objects in his dark materials. Yeah. So, so one is kind of inspired by the like lithiometer, mm-hmm. where uh, well, I mean, <laughs> where it gives you control over kind of which symbols in terms of which suits you're picking from. Yeah. Uh, one is inspired by the amber spyglass, so it's kind of like a three card Monty thing where you get to see where the Joker is and then uh, before the cards you pick from are then shuffled in front of you. Uh, and one is like uh, the subtle knife, so you split the number of cards that you're that you're picking from. Mm-hmm. So it's deep, guys. Very deep. <laughs> oh, it's just a bit of crack, like because you know we had run out of two player card games that we could play together. <laughs> in the sun on the balcony basically yeah, yeah. so we made our own uh yeah it's also because like uh, i'm a fan of this like online like one player card game called decadence which is uh based on the numeram by anders j amat i mean i i'm surely not pronouncing it right but doubt i cannot <laughs> believe 
that somebody will be using their real name to talk about the numerogram, so it's almost a non-issue. But uh, they've also made this incredible game where you summon demons. R1 hopefully doesn't summon demons, or if you do, that's not a function of the game to yeah, tell you about them. But it might, because we're so we're because we're using the same system. Yeah. Are we? Yeah, similar. Same yeah, I don't system. think uh, I don't think face cards are involved in. Um, no. The in in decadence or sub decadence. Yeah, and then the everything else is based on nine pairs, which is based on the number system from the numerogram. And you're finding something because in both pieces of media, someone is looking for someone else. Mm. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't the know. The Joker is Jessica Hyde. J- exactly. Maybe the game is where is Jessica Hyde. I was like <laughs> thinking, yeah, like maybe that is the game, you know. Um, and it's Jessica rather than the Joker, you know. Yeah. 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 There, there you go. There you have it. Um, well, maybe it's Jameis. That's a cooler card design. Maybe it's Janus, but it's Jessica's face. Yeah, because Janus is, I mean, Janus is in Jessica, so yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Sorted. Love it. Simple ass. There you go. Um, coming soon. Coming soon. Where is Jessica Hyde? <laughs> Our historic materials themed card game. <laughs> if you've got tens, throw them away. <laughs> you won't be needing them here. Uh, yeah, so that's our card game. It sounds insane, but it's 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 pretty simple to play. Yeah, it's very straightforward. Uh, and, and good fun. So tell us if you play it. Yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback if you play it. Um, and I will say as well, in terms of um, uh, recommended reading, in terms of anything that we've discussed, if we've got something completely wrong, um, you know, usually I would say do not interact. But like in this instance, <laughs> do feel free to send us an email. We'd love to hear uh, what people think or if there's like stuff that uh, we could be doing differently that would that would make things better. For, for listeners, we'd love to know. So the email is um, notnotpod at gmail.com. Um, yeah, and we're also on Twitter at notnotpod, Instagram at notnotpod, and now we're on Tumblr. At notnotpod. Wow. <laughs> Twitter is probably a quick way to reach us. Email is good. Um, Tumblr will just be retumbling <laughs> relevant gift sets or whatnot. Anyway... <laughs> Speaking of doing things differently, this has already been an incredibly long episode, but mm. in an attempt to make the less the next episode less long, we wanted to try a slightly new format. Yeah. If it doesn't work, we'll just throw it away. We'll scrap it. Doesn't matter. But it's all just an experiment. Yeah, sometimes, you know, if you want things to be better in the future, you gotta make sacrifices now. And that's why this episode is two hours long. <laughs> but yeah, so we do something a bit differently, so we're going to pick next month's items that we're going to discuss now. Yeah, but what's our, what's our goal with this? Our goal is just that maybe people can read stuff in advance. Yeah, we want to be able to um, bring people along with us so you'll have more time to uh, read along if you want to read along. It's also just like, it's not a very efficient kind of recording process that we have at the minute. We've got one, two, three sometimes sections of recording. 
Whereas I think if we could bring it down to one recording session a month and a thing, that's plenty, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than pick and then research and then record and then make, you know. Sure. So it's a lot more. All right. Are we ready to generate our film slash TV show? Yes. It's number 10. What's it going to be? It's going to be Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so excited. Catherine's so unhappy with this. Oh, I'm just thrilled that I'm going to have to watch. Begrudgingly <laughs> allowed me to put this on the list. Now, now uh, she has to watch it. Yeah, no, because do, do you have a particular episode in mind? or? Um, I think when I put this on the list, I was thinking about series one. Mm-hmm. More so, because well, there's series two is good as well, but like there's a lot of kind of time travel, mm-hmm. which we've kind of covered mm-hmm. on this podcast. But series one has some good stuff. It's got some multiple universes again. Great. And it's also got some really interesting stuff about uh, fungus, mm-hmm. which I think... Is, is kind of the main thing I was thinking of yeah when I put this on the list it's got a, a sort of a fungal multi-dimensional network great so excited cool. for so that I think there's like there's a few different ways we could go with it depending on for sure. we'll what it's going to be matched with yeah so. we'll see what comes up great um, so let's generate a book okay I'm like nervous Oh, I feel nervous about it. It's number 15, which is The Motherless Oven. Wow, 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 wow. This is a Catherine special. I don't I, even know what this is. I guess I it's a Catherine special. It's a comic. I think you do know. I think you have read it. It's a it's a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, incredibly odd. I cannot imagine what the theme, the thematic tie-ins are going to be. Really good. Basically, uh, I suppose fe- speculative fiction um, in this world where children build their own parents. Okay. And they uh, it, they build their own parents, and their parents are like these kind, and they build their own gods, and they're okay. like these little household devices. And also they like know when they're gonna die. So we're like following this kid who knows he's gonna die in like three days. Okay. Sounds cool. It's very cool. I feel like it probably based on that description has more in common with Star Trek Discovery season two. Yeah, okay. Brilliant. And then for the crack, and we'll see next time whether we can work it in. Mm-hmm. Let's turn to our third list, which we are reallocating from Simply Songs to Becoming a wildcard list. It still comprises mostly of songs. It's mostly <laughs> songs because we haven't added that much to it. But again, if anybody has any recommendations for random stuff. Yeah, stuff that isn't in the other two lists, basically. Yeah, if it's not a film or it's not a book. Yeah, so like artworks audio pieces like a weird shaped cloud that you saw whatever send us a picture as long as there's some way we can engage <laughs> with it 
We'll put them in. We will bang it on the list. Okay, I'm generating what card? Number 14. Which is the song We Appreciate Power by Grimes. Interesting song with fascist undertones. Fascist overtones, <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, but it's a it's a banger. Yeah. We can say that for sure. Oh, it, it certainly bangs, yeah. Um, an absolute banger from start to finish. Definitely a song that was released with the intention of corrupting people's brains. Yeah, like she's fully like gunning for the AI singularity with that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. With that track. Yeah. I think like all three texts have kind of got this like, they've all got sort of a destiny mm, mm-hmm. sort of angle. So interested to see what we make with those and as usual, always interested to see whether we can make the thing from the third list function at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what we would make with these three texts, haven't a clue. But we'll see, we'll well, find that's, out. That's it, the process. <laughs> it always works out somehow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, and again, if you have any suggestions for anything to go on the lists, um, do get in touch through our email or social media. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for spending two hours of your life yeah, <laughs> listening to us. You didn't have to do this, but you have. We appreciate it. <laughs>